everyone and welcome. My name's Rachel. And I'm Andrew. And we are Picture the Scene Podcast, brought to you by Aura Studios. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you an episode on a weekly basis, with Andrew mainly focusing on the lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, I like to take on some of the bigger, well-known cases from time to time. As we are a true crime podcast, listener caution is advised, and today is no different. Unfortunately, on the topic today will be the death of a mother and her unborn baby. So if this is something you feel you aren't able to listen to just now, please feel free to skip on and head on through our back catalogue. If you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer, along with wherever you listen. And if you have the capability, why not give us a rating and review as well? These ratings and reviews honestly mean so much to us, because not only do we love hearing from our wonderful listeners, but it also encourages new listeners to come and give us a try. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And thank you. We've had a lot of recently, Rachel. We've had a spurge in Spotify rating reviews. Mostly Amazing. good, some bad. So um, you can't actually review it, it's just a rating. So thank you to everyone who's given a Spotify review recently. Yeah, absolutely. And we do recognise we're not going to be everyone's cup of tea, hey? Exactly. And talking about cups of tea... If you like us that much, that you want to support us, you can do for less than a cup of tea or the price of a small Americano on Patreon. And we release bonus content every month and have recently started taking recommendations from our Patreon subscribers too. Supporting our pod means the world to us. So thank you to each and every one of you who continue to do so. They're all awesome. Absolutely awesome. We have the best listeners. And finally, for now, the links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or by visiting patreon.com forward slash scene pod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. And that is the end of us broadcasting our terms and conditions. Ooh. ooh. Okay, Andrew, before we get into it, how have you been? I have been sparkling. Thank you very much, Rachel. What about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. All good over here. Although um, before we came on to record, I was explaining to Andrew that the car boot had hit me this morning in the head. And I'm also a bit at sixes and sevens with my recording equipment. But uh, hey, we've made it. So winning at life, eh? As my mum always used to say to me, no sense, no feeling. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Okay. Well, we're attempting something a little bit different this week, and I'll be bringing you a two-part episode with the first installment today, and that's focusing on the time running up to and immediately following the crime that we're covering. And our second episode, which will air next week, will focus on the run-up to the trial. This case is quite a well-known case and a very well-documented one, so I'm going to tell the story to our listeners and try and remove any bias so you can make up your own mind on their guilt or innocence. As I did mention, it's a major US case from 21 years ago, which was recently back in the press and has therefore sparked my curiosity. And I personally originally like set out with my own verdict on the case and on the defendant, but I have changed my mind quite a few times during um, the research phase of of the for this pod. I'm really keen to hear from anyone who has an opinion on this case. And yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of presenting um, my thoughts um, and and uh, feelings on on what, what's happened um, during the, the case and the trial. But yeah, for now, let's jump right in. So if it's safe for you to do so, 
I'd like all of you to sit back, relax and picture the scene. I'm taking you back to Tuesday, the 24th of December, 2002, to Modesto, California. It's 6.53 in the morning, and the temperature has notched just above zero degrees Celsius. That's a cool 34 degrees Fahrenheit. But it is Christmas Eve morning, so we can forgive the cold in the air. At 5.23 Covina Avenue, the Peterson household is quiet and still. 27-year-old Lacey Denise Peterson wakes up just after 7am that morning. Her mind was racing with plans for the day ahead. Having finished her breakfast of cereal, she begins making a list of final errands to run before the big man arrives and it's Christmas Day. Her husband, 30-year-old Scott Peterson, stirs at around 8am and heads downstairs to join his wife for breakfast, treating himself to a bowl of cinnamon puffs from Trader Joe's. I thought that was quite an interesting cereal choice for a 30-year-old man, but... Is, I don't know what they are. Uh, they're obviously just available in America, maybe? Yeah, um, potentially. I actually think that they're a little bit like um, Cheerios, maybe, over here. Maybe. I, I could be standard. Somebody can, um, you know, I'm happy to be corrected. What's the word? I'm happy to stand corrected on that. But uh, yeah, I imagine that's what they're like. But yeah, I, I did think to myself, but then I also thought, and massively digressing here, my other half really loves Frosties, and I always have seen them as quite a uh, children's cereal. Not sure what your thoughts are there, Andrew. Frosties, I tell you, uh, Frosties, yeah, they are virgin on the children's cereal. I tell you what, I, I was trying to get for months, and I can't seem to find them anymore. Sugar Puffs. Oh, oh wow. Who was the, who was the, there was a Sugar Puff? Monster, honey, right? honey monster, yeah. But uh, I, I did find a packet in the end, but they're not called sugar puffs anymore, they're called something else, and they don't have sugar on them anymore. I don't think oh, um, so. They're not sugar puffs anymore, really. Yeah, um, interestingly, in Dubai, there is a there is a, a cafe in the mall that sells old cereals, and w- when I say old cereals, not like Molded. dated. Yeah. cereals yeah like retro cereals Very cool. so that's that's quite a cool concept isn't it yeah i mean there's there's not much the dubai mall doesn't have on offer um but yeah a cereal shop who knew the petersons tied the knot back in 1997 having met just two years earlier in 95 at a local restaurant whilst they both attended the california polytechnic state university Lacey, an outgoing, smiley, and energetic Californian girl, was now about to celebrate the Christmas she'd always dreamt of. At 33 weeks pregnant with her baby boy, who the pair had named Connor, she was excited to start a family they had long yearned for. 2002 had been the year that everything had finally come together for this happily married couple. Strange that you would name your baby so publicly before it's born. Do you, do you think that? Yeah, some people do and some don't. I think it's just a mindset, isn't it? Yeah. I was just I was just thinking how nice it sounds and you're gonna destroy it with some murder and mayhem bracing, I aren't am, you? But... I am. I'm sorry. It's not it's not yeah, it's not a happy ending. And we fast forward just ten hours later to five forty eight in the evening on the twenty fourth of December, when Lacey would be reported missing to police by her stepfather never to be seen alive again. So by Connor's dad, not Connor's dad, um, sorry, I forgot what her husband's name is. 
um so no his stepfather so Lacey's oh, okay. um mum had remarried yeah sorry my bad it's okay what's her husband's name now scott scott sorry yeah the case I'm presenting today is made up of readily available information sourced from the court documents, from appeals, and from news articles that are based on the web. And I've attempted to piece together what we understand is fact now over the next couple of paragraphs. Um, and I've included some additional information which hasn't been able to be verified, um, but it is an individual's account. But yeah, let's get back into it and see what you think. So back to Christmas Eve morning and after breakfast, Scott headed up to shower and get himself ready for the day ahead. At around 8.40, whilst he was in the shower, activity on the Peterson home computer, tucked away in the spare bedroom, showed what we now believe to be Lacey checking the weather and shopping on Yahoo for a red gap scarf and a sunflower umbrella stamp. These searches lasted for approximately five minutes, and they show a good amount of time was spent on the three web pages before the computer went into sleep mode. Lacey then rejoined Scott in the bedroom to run through her plans for the day which included taking their golden retriever, Mackenzie, out for a walk and finishing up the last of the tidying around the house as well as heading to the shops for groceries. On her list, a loaf of bread for some French toast she was keen to make on Christmas Day morning and the ingredients for making gingerbread too. Scott headed downstairs to complete a couple of chores Lacey had asked for his help with, including loading his trailer up with some patio umbrellas from the garden. His neighbour, Kristen, verified seeing him loading up items into his pickup truck just after 9am on the driveway. Scott was then planning a trip to work to deliver the umbrellas, fire off some emails and then squeeze a quick round of golf in before running an errand for Amy, Lacey's half-sister, to collect a fruit basket and head home for supper with Lacey's parents. It was just a typical busy Christmas Eve. And it's like typical, isn't it, for like, there to be a list of can you do this that and the other because on christmas day you know we down all tools we stop all chores so if you could get everything done on christmas eve please do you know get the umbrellas out of the garden that have probably been lying there for like three or four months but no it's christmas eve they need to be gone definitely quite like that the errand that i just mentioned felicia's half sister proves crucial in the story so we're going to hit pause on the 24th for a second and just take you back 24 hours earlier to monday the 23rd of december at 5.45pm, both Lacey and Scott were visiting a salon in Modesto for Scott's pre-Christmas haircut. And again, I think it really, like, describes the kind of woman Lacey was. Like, you know, kind of shooing her husband in for a quick haircut before the Christmas Day photos were going to happen, making sure that everyone looked presentable. I like I like the sound of her. She sounds like yeah. a nice, wholesome woman. Shopping for awesome. a, 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 sunflower umbrella stand immediately yeah. I thought that sounds quite nice yeah yeah and I think that like throughout this and throughout the case and all the photos of Lacey that's exactly what she's portrayed as like really wholesome really happy go lucky all American California girl like so during the trip to the salon Amy had confirmed to Lacey that she called Vela Farms and placed an order for a fruit basket for their papa who was their grandpa, and that it needed to be collected by 3pm the following day before the farm shop closed. Scott had offered to run the errand as he was golfing just a few miles away and it made sense for him to make the trip. The girls took him up on the offer and carried on with their chatter. After finishing up the haircut, Amy then taught Lacey how to use her curling wand to create flicks in her hair before Scott and Lacey then headed off to collect their takeaway pizza and settle in for a bit of Monday night football. 
Amy recalled exactly what Lacey wore that evening and would later testify in court those exact clothes were found in their laundry basket at the Modesto home. And so now we're going to head back to Christmas Eve morning. It's around 9.48am and the pair have finally sat down on the sofa together to watch the Today Show. Scott recalls the segment with Martha Stewart. Lacey was apparently inspired by the meringues whisked up on national television that morning. This might seem trivial, but it is important to note. And she therefore added the necessary ingredients to her grocery list for later on. So she's like quite a busy woman, isn't she? Like making all all the food. Before he left the house, Scott filled up a mop bucket for Lacey. She was also keen to mop and tidy before the visitors arrived the following morning. But he was not keen on her doing the heavy lifting. Let's not forget, she's 33 weeks pregnant. How many, sorry, cut you off here, because I'm going to show my ignorance here. I know it's nine months, but how many weeks is nine months? Uh, well, so, it, no, it's not ignorant at all. And I think until you're pregnant, you don't actually realise. Um, so you're pregnant for 40 weeks. Oh, which so she's technically, close. Yeah, yeah. Which technically is longer than nine months. Oh, is it? So, well, yeah. So um, 40 weeks, if you divide the average month into four, it's actually like 10 months, if that makes sense. But yeah. you're not 10 months pregnant, right? But the way that they track pregnancy is that your first month, is like yes exactly um so i get one free (laughs) yeah exactly um oh no sorry i thought you said pre not free um so your first month in or your first four weeks of your pregnancy is like what happens when your body is preparing to get pregnant i won't go too far into it um but yeah so she's 33 weeks pregnant so a lot of outlets are going to advertise that she's eight months pregnant and technically she is but um, she was actually due February 10th, and this is December 24th. So I flipped it into weeks pregnant because I think that that gives you more of an idea how far along she is. That's something new today. Yeah. And uh, so she's seven weeks off her due date, Andrew. The prosecution would later testify that the cleaner had actually been around on the 23rd, just the day before, and there'd be absolutely no reason for a 33-week pregnant woman to be mopping the house again. However, we understand from testimony from her mother, Sharon Rocher, that Lacey was extremely house proud and wanted to ensure her house was picture perfect for their first Christmas hosting the rest of the family. It was around 10am when Scott left the Peterson house in his pickup truck, heading towards his office, a a warehouse type space at 1027 Emerald Modesto. His GPSE tracked him arriving there at, strangely enough, 1027 in the morning. And Scott was a fertilizer salesman. He worked for a company called Trade Corp USA, which was a subsidiary of a Spanish fertilizer company. Once he arrived at work, activity on his phone and work computer showed he was busy for approximately 30 minutes, responding to emails and voicemails from his boss. He also had some time to like um, assemble a piece of equipment in the, fa- in, the, in the warehouse. And then shortly after 10 a.m., he logged off the computer and decided against going to the golf course. He thought it was too cold. So instead, he hooked on a brand new boat he'd purchased only a couple of weeks earlier to his pickup truck. And at around 11.18, he left work to begin a 90-minute trip to Berkeley Marina, situated on the east coast of San Francisco Bay, where he arrived at 12.54, as evidenced on his marina parking receipt. Did he pick the fruit up? Not yet. I do it by three o'clock, haven't I? Mm, Hit pause on that. Scott would later tell detectives that upon arrival, he stayed for approximately two hours, during which time he launched his boat, 
motored north for two miles to Brooks Island, where he drifted for a bit and fished. But it then became choppy and started to rain, so he headed back in. He did speak to a couple of fellow fishermen, both on the way out and the way back in. And a gardener and two Berkeley City employees reported seeing him and verified the times he gave to the police. However, the prosecution would later argue in court that Scott's account of that time period should not be trusted, as the harbour master testified it did not rain at all at the marina on the 24th of December. During this 83-mile car trip, back at home at approximately 10.18, Mackenzie the dog was discovered by the next-door neighbour on the sidewalk, his muddy leash still attached, with no trace of Lacey to be found. That's not good, is it? No. So and so house-proud and so meticulous. You wouldn't let your dog run around with a muddy leash. No, on the sidewalk. Yeah. Of like a quite a busy road, hey? Neighbour Karen Service testified that she walked Mackenzie across the front lawn of the Peterson's house, noticing their side gate was open at a 90-degree angle. She popped Mackenzie back in, said her goodbyes, and closed the gate fully behind her. And I love that. Like, you do just say goodbye to a dog, don't you? You yeah, do, yeah. Can't not. Only 20 minutes later, the postman walked past the same gate, noticing that the gate was once again open, but oddly no Mackenzie barking at him, as was usually the case. The postman would later claim that despite contacting police, he was never called on for a witness statement, something he now believes could have helped detectives better understand the timeline of events that morning. Between 9.50 and 10.45, there were multiple but unconfirmed sightings of Lacey observed in an approximate one-mile loop from her home. But of the 24 individuals who claimed to have witnessed Lacey walking Mackenzie during this 55-minute period, only three of these sightings were followed up by Modesto police during their investigation. And this was by telephone. No in-person visits were made and no one was brought to the stand during the trial to testify to what they did or did not see that morning. It sounds like, um, I mean, I don't know this case at all. And so I'm, I'm switching between did the husband do it, did the dog do it? But um, but it sounds like the police were not invested in investigating this properly. No, and just for context as well, like there was another pregnant woman that lived on the block. She looked nothing like Lacey, had a completely different hair colour. She also had one child already. And I know that probably doesn't sound like a lot, but a pregnant woman with her bearing her first child, you know, in, I guess has very different like life to a pregnant woman that's carrying her second child and that kind of just has to get on with things. So, so Lacey perhaps would have been a little bit more laboured in her, like, approach to walking the dog around the block you know a little bit slower a little bit whereas the other woman the neighbor that was purported to have been you know confused for Lacey she was up and out every morning looking after a toddler with the dog in tow like does that make sense that makes sense yeah so we also know that at 11 40 approximately an hour after the last unconfirmed sighting of Lacey a witness reported seeing three men lurking in front of 516 Covina Avenue, the house directly opposite the Peterson property. The homeowners had left just after 10.30 on Christmas Eve for their short trip to LA. It would later be reported that their property was burgled on the 24th of December, with thousands of dollars worth of jewellery being taken, amongst other items, during the burglary. It would turn out to be the best lead on missing Lacey. However, just a short time after the men responsible for the burglary were caught, they claimed to have burgled the house on Boxing Day, the 26th of December, which the Mm. Modesto police then had the cheek to report in the press. 
And I say they had the cheek to report in the press because this case was so largely covered across the US that by the morning of Christmas Day, the 25th of um, December, that Covina Avenue was full of Modesto reporters and news cameras and no one had caught anything of the burglars of their van or their van on camera. So, like, when the police did get a lead and when they eventually came to the press conference and told everyone, oh, by the way, the burglars couldn't have had anything to do with it because they burgled the house two days later, it was completely factually incorrect. Because the reporters would have been there, yeah. Yeah, the reports would have been there. The reports were in the audience saying, well, yeah, we had had people on that street at 6am when you're telling me those burglars burgled the house and they didn't catch anything. What did the police say to that? Oh, it, so the police came back out and corrected their original statement back to the 24th. And that obviously, you know, the, the burglars were concerned that they would be um, tied to the missing woman, Lacey. So it it was almost reported in a way that, oh, it was understandable that they that they lied because, you know, they were desperate not to be tied to this missing woman. Well, of course they were. Yeah. Oh, so now we've got, and I flippantly said the dog because the gate was back open again, but I know the dog didn't do it. So now we've got potentially the husband or the three burglars. Mm. I assume she's dead. You said that at the beginning, but maybe she's not dead. Spoiler alert. Yep, she died. It's good to clarify in my head. Back to the Berkeley Marina, and it's 10 past two in the afternoon when Scott returns to his vehicle and begins his car journey home. He called Lacey just minutes into his trip, but there was no answer, so he left a voicemail. Hey, beautiful. I just left a message at home. It's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Vella Farms to get the basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. Establishing an alibi. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's an interesting one. This voicemail was reviewed and kind of like picked apart because there were two sides of Scott Peterson. Um, that were brought to to the court. And one was that he was just this man that kind of wouldn't go out of his way to be affectionate and caring, um, that, you know, a lot of his pals and maybe co-workers kind of came out and backed up and supported. And then there was this other side of him, like the perfect gentleman, the perfect brother-in-law, the perfect husband, that absolutely would have left a voicemail like that for his wife. So, so yeah, you could argue alibi, you could argue innocent voicemail lost track of time you know oh shit better better butter up my wife and tell her that i love her let's see i'm excited to see what happens so scott dropped his boat back to the office and arrived back to modesto home between 4 30 and 4 45 where he confirmed seeing Lacey's car still on the driveway but there were no lights on in the house he headed into the house the same way he left earlier on in the morning which is through the now closed side gate He immediately noticed Mackenzie in the back garden with his leash still on, running free. Scott confirms he took off the leash and put it on the picnic table. He then headed on into the utility area of the house and Mackenzie and the Peterson cat followed him in. The cat ran towards a mop bucket of water he'd filled for Lacey earlier that morning. So Scott promptly took the bucket outside and dumped the water onto the pathway. He returned to the house and headed straight to the washing machine removed a pile of unwashed clothes from inside and left them on the countertop. He then proceeded to take off his clothes, put them in the washer and started the cycle. 
His family and friends would later testify this was not unusual behaviour for Scott. Given he worked with fertiliser chemicals, he was in the habit of removing and washing his clothes as soon as he came into the family home, so Lacey did not have to touch them. Nice. Yeah, very respectful. After undressing, he went into the kitchen. He ate a slice of cold pizza and drank a glass of cold milk from the fridge, and he then headed upstairs for a shower. Upon returning downstairs, he checked the answer phone for messages as the lights were flashing. All this time, he was not concerned that Lacey wasn't around. He'd figured her mum had collected her and they had run the grocery errands together. But upon hearing a voicemail from Lacey's stepdad, Ron, asking them to pick up some whipped cream, Scott called Sharon to check in. Now we're going to introduce witness accounts back into the thread, so I'm going to run through a verified timeline of events now. At 5.17 that evening, Scott calls Sharon, Lacey's mum, to see if Lacey's there, but she is not. After a brief discussion, Sharon tells him to call some of her friends and visit the neighbours too to check if anyone has seen her. 5.26, Scott then calls Stacy, one of Lacey's girlfriends, asks her if she's seen Lacey or talked to her. She has not, but offers to check in on some other friends to see if they have. At 5.30, Scott heads to the neighbour's house, at which point he seems to be distraught. The neighbour confirmed she had not seen Lacey all day and was in fact under the impression the Petersons had left for holidays as the blinds weren't up. Now, this was never verified. Were the blinds up? Were they down? Uh, apparently, Lacey was very house proud. Um, and the first thing she did in the morning before she sat down and had breakfast was pull the blinds up, draw the curtains, make sure it's all, you know, very um, neat and tidy. So this was deemed by her neighbour to be very unusual. But never quite got to the bottom of, of that one. The neighbour did, however, confirm the Christmas tree lights did come on approximately an hour earlier than Scott arrived home. Um, and at this point, Scott's car was not on the driveway, so she assumed that the Christmas tree lights were on a timer. Yeah. By, by 5.44, Scott has called several people in a frantic search for Lacey and then returned Sharon's call, confirming no one has seen or heard from her. At this point, Sharon instructs her husband, Ron, to call the hospitals and to call the police, and then called her friend to come and collect her and bring her to the Peterson house. It's at 5.48 when Lacey is reported missing. Initially, it would be claimed at trial that Scott called the police, but Ron Gransky, Lacey's stepfather, was definitely the one to make the call. The audio of the call can be found online, and just to note, this is now the third piece of evidence the police have misreported to the prosecution. We'll actually link the audio um, of the call in the show notes for those that want to listen. So just before 6pm, Scott headed down towards the park near their property where friends and members of the general public had begun to gather and help in the search for his wife. The police arrived on scene just 16 minutes after the call at 6.04pm. By 6.10pm, Scott was unaware that his stepdad had made a call to police. So he makes his own call to the police to report Lacey missing. Um, and phone calls actually show that he made a total of 13 calls in those 50 minutes, the last one being the to the police uh, before, yeah, before he decided to call them. Um, and at the point that someone answers the phone at the station, police officer John Evers, who's already on scene, approaches Scott to speak about missing Lacey. He proceeds to ask him general questions about when she was last seen. Scott recounts his morning to the officer, telling him he left Lacey at about 9.30 that morning. He went to the warehouse where he stored his boat, then took that boat to go fishing, arriving at the Berkeley Marina about noon. 
He fished for about two hours, then quit when it started to rain. He brought the boat back to the warehouse, then went home, arriving at 4.30. Mackenzie was in the backyard with the leash on, and Lucy's car was in the drive. He also noted the back French doors were unlocked. Scott told PC Evers that Lacey was wearing a white, long sleeve shirt and black pants, as well as a watch, a diamond ring, diamond earrings and a diamond necklace. He also told Evers about the sunflower tattoo and the scar on her torso. Evers used this information to file a missing persons report. And just to like confirm, I said that the general public had started gathering in the park at the time that Lacey went missing. By 9pm that evening, Christmas Eve, there were as many as 90 people in that park looking for Lacey. So what community they had there? I was just thinking that some community, even some community that, I know I said that about the police earlier, but they usually make you wait. Maybe because she was pregnant, she was seen as vulnerable, I imagine. Yes, I think so. In this particular case, um, it was very high risk because, yeah, Yeah. she's so far along in her pregnancy. Great community, though. People at the best of times are like short notice, but on Christmas Eve as well. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay, so press reports would later claim that Scott gave police incorrect information about this specific conversation, in, including Scott lying originally about his whereabouts earlier that day. They suggested he was at the golf course and then changed his story at a later date when interviewed by police that he was fishing. In actual fact, it was his in-laws that had notified the police he was golfing. His statement on his whereabouts for Christmas Eve never changed. Media. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, like the media were kind of fed parts of the case. And it's really wild. I'll go on to explain that in a bit. But what the media had access to in this particular case led them to like remembering like like 20% of the fact, uh, 20% of the facts and 80% fiction versus like what they, you know, had they been reporting like facts like fully factual instances might played out completely differently. I don't know where you're leading me here, Rachel, because I keep thinking it must be the husband and he's got out in a boat to dump her over the side, but you keep making me think maybe it's not the husband. And, you know, that's what I kind of set out at the start to do. It was that to give you the facts and not give you my bias. or yeah. like I will obviously give you my opinion, and the way I've written the script, though, obviously, you know, I am writing this. So, I, I, but I have tried to keep it as factual as possible so that you can make your own decision. Okay. So, media outlets also reported several misfacts about what Lacey was wearing and the jewelry that was found in the house, which Scott reported was on Lacey. But it was later mentioned in court that none of those jewelry items were ever found in the house. So, but no one ever kind of like stepped back and said, oh, by the way, we misreported. That, that 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 Lacey wasn't wearing that jewelry and that she wasn't wearing those clothes. Her watch had actually been pawned uh, just a couple of weeks after she went missing at a local jeweler's as well, but they could never Ooh. find the source. Um, so the person that kind of brought it in and took the money. That's unusual. You'd think whoever the killer is wouldn't have done that. Mm. Wouldn't have done that because, like, if it's Scott, then. But you think just, he's wealthy? He sounds wealthy enough not to have to pour on a watch. Well, he would have been being watched at that point, Andrew. So it's definitely not Scott pawning that watch. Exactly. But just to, just to clarify, um, those burglars that have burgled five sixteen Cavino Avenue, 
have taken a number of items of jewelry. Right. If they had potentially also taken Lacey's jewelry, not saying Lacey, but Lacey's jewelry. Yeah. You know, they're not going to say, oh, that's that pregnant woman's watch. Don't pawn that, but pawn it's, everything else. I guess. And if they've broken into, say, the house after she's been killed and taken away, they're not to know. They're just going to steal what they can, aren't they? Yeah. Although, like, the burglar's broken to obviously 516, not 523, where Lacey and Scott lived. They might have done more than one house. Yeah, know. well, the police statement, actually, I will just go on to to run through now um, of the original walkthrough. But by 6.20, additional officers had arrived at 5.23 Covina Avenue, the last place Lacey was seen alive. Scott also returned to the home at this time. However, he was not allowed in, as police had secured the property. Scott gave his permission for a search to go ahead, and the following was recorded by the officers conducting the search. Going into the courtyard, I noticed the mops and buckets next to the door, and it looked like water had dripped recently on the stone. When entering the house, we separated. I went into the living area. I saw the pizza box on the counter still with some pieces in it, and a rug scrunched accordion style against the door in the living room. I noticed several dirty, wet rags on the washing machine. The rest of the room almost was like a model home. Everything was in place. The chairs and rugs were all set. The magazines on the coffee table were all laid out. That's what made the rug and the rags stick out. I went into the second bedroom and noticed some duffel bags on the closet shelf and one on the floor, upside down. When I finished the walkthrough, I went and joined one other officer and Scott. And then four of us proceeded to do another walkthrough. John Evers, the second officer on the initial walkthrough, said he looked through all the rooms and all the closets and pulled back the shower curtains in the bathroom. No furniture was overturned and there was no evidence of the house being ransacked. Lacey's purse was hanging in the closet, undisturbed in the master bedroom. Now, the reason why that quote there is no evidence of the house being ransacked is important is because on the 26th of December, when the neighbours returned home and discovered their property had been burgled, their house was torn upside down. There was shit everywhere. You'd imagine so, but you said that the burglars don't know where the look, items are. People hide them, don't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't think that those burglars ever stepped foot in the Peterson household because okay. everything was still picturesque in terms of like where the jewellery and things were kept. Her purse was hanging up on the wardrobe, you know, undisturbed. Okay. So during the second walkthrough, this time with Scott, Police were asking questions about the rags and the rug in the living room, which he was able to explain away. They went on to ask random questions about his fishing trip, which he also responded to. Now, one officer claimed that during this questioning, Scott threw down his flashlight and said the F word. However, none of the other officers reported this, and it was not included in the discovery documents that were given to the defence team. However, the outburst was unofficially reported to the media. It sounds dodgy, this, doesn't it? Yeah. Drip feeding him to make it look like he is the perpetrator. That's what it sounds like to me. They're, they're trying to make a narrative. So when it goes to trial, he's already bad guy number one. Yeah, but but the difference is they're not putting it in trial documents. They're just feeding it to the media so that people are making assumptions out that, there in the public. But that will affect, affect the trial still. Yeah, 
So <clears throat> Scott, at this point, Scott handed over the parking receipt, which confirmed his visit to the marina, and this was added into evidence. Later, police officers would actually claim that it was dodgy that he had a parking receipt to claim to like evident exactly where he was. But I kind of think you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't in these instances. Yeah. If he didn't have a parking receipt confirming that he parked his car and, you know, launched his boat in Berkeley Marina, his timeline would have been in dispute. But because he had that receipt, that was seen as, oh, he, well, he's trying to like, you know, give us an alibi here. I don't know about you, but whenever we have like car parking tickets, the receipts, they just go in a little like well of the car door. So until like a couple of weeks later when you have a massive clean out. Yeah. So it's not like I don't, I don't know. Maybe he did it on purpose, but it's more than likely it's just you, you just put it in the closest thing, don't you? Yeah. And I, I guess the point of kind of mentioning that was like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't in these instances, yeah. aren't you? Shortly after, a friend of Scott's who was at the house to help with the search for Lacey claimed to have overheard police on the radio suggesting there were inconsistencies in his story and that the husband could potentially be a person of interest. Over the next six days, police continued to investigate the case and grew increasingly suspicious of Scott Peterson, despite his family and in-laws standing behind him in the hunt for Lacey. His behaviour over this time was not that of a normal spouse whose wife has gone missing. But who can say what is not normal in these circumstances? Like, I don't know about you, but I don't yeah, think there's yeah. like a playbook for how you behave when your pregnant wife has, has gone missing. And stress affects people in so many different ways. And I mean, it, it sounds like, it sounds like as well, the picture you paint of him is that maybe he doesn't always find it easy to show emotions. So, so it, I don't know. It's yeah. what's well, an indicator for me. I know it's not always the case, but like his in-laws sticking by him, that's always a decent indicator. Not always accurate because obviously you can fool your in-laws, but it it shows what it's they like thought. a character reference, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it shows what they thought of him beforehand. Yeah, yeah, and I also think that like he was heavily scrutinised for going golfing on Christmas Eve when his wife is heavily pregnant. But as well, you know, his in-laws were the first to say that, like, the kind of girl that Lacey, she'd have wanted him from out of the house, from under her feet, because he would have only gotten in the way of her, like, cleaning or shopping or, you know, I don't know, if she'd have cleaned the living room, he'd have sat on the sofa, mm. ruined all the plumped up cushions and sat there putting his feet up watching television. Like she was, you know, almost grateful a lot of the time to have him at the house so she could go about her business and do what she needed to do and welcome him home later. You've been pregnant, Rachel. I, I haven't, even though sometimes <laughs> people think I am. Um, surely you wouldn't want... I know, obviously, it's it's not easy being pregnant, but... It doesn't mean you'd want someone by your side 24-7. Like, no, you can't do anything. Like, no, you can't have any hobbies because I'm pregnant. Yeah. How, how dare you go leave the house? I actually, I actually think it's quite the opposite. Like, you crack on and go out and do everything, get out of your system, because when this baby arrives, you are chained to this house to wait on us both hand and foot for the first couple of weeks because, you know, we will 
be sleep deprived, broken people. Very good point. Yeah. Police actually recounted him acting really oddly um, in the six days following Lacey's Lacey going missing. So he avoided all public appearances. He was swerving press conferences and he was not publicly part of the crowd that was tirelessly combing the area with family and volunteers searching for Lacey each day. Instead, Scott would be staying quiet in his Modesto home or he'd be working at the Lacey Peterson hotline so they'd kind of had this team of volunteers in a a local kind of like shop front that was running like a tip line um and he would just be behind the scenes um almost just you know hoping either a she'll return home and i'll be here when she does or b that someone will call with evidence or information that's going to help us locate her whereabouts and um that was found, you know, to be quite the case from his conversations, which were actually tape recorded with police. And we'll go into that in a bit. Um, but yeah, he he like on on tape recordings, you know, he is calling the police saying, have we got any information? Have we followed up on this tip? He was probably a bit more matter of fact, though. He wasn't like very emotional. He wasn't he was in control of his, um, you know, the, the conversation, his feelings. Um, but that like didn't quite match up for the police. The police weren't actually having any of it. They were waiting for him to trip up and reveal what had actually happened at 523 Covina Avenue that Christmas Eve. And just five days later, their luck was in. A 27-year-old woman by the name of Amber Frey called the Modesto Police Department on the 30th of December, claiming to be in a relationship with their person of interest. Ooh. Less than one month later, on the 24th of January, Lacey's family held a press conference to publicly withdraw their support for Scott. And that same day in January 2003, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Amber Frey stepped out in front of a room full of reporters at the Modesto Police Department to tell the story of how she met a 30-year-old, recently widowed man by the name of Scott Peterson five weeks before his wife went missing on the 20th of November. Okay, then. I don't... This obviously is sounding dodgy now. Uh, being can understand the parents withdrawing their support. I don't understand, like, why would... He said it was at the police station. So why would they wheel her out? Maybe things are just done differently in America. And I don't understand it. Or maybe it's better that they do it that way. I don't know. But why would you wheel it out and say, look, we've got this witness? Like, surely... So, I don't... So... I actually think, and it's probably the way that I've presented it there, but Amber Frey had a clear message to tell the audience in that she had met Scott Peterson five weeks before Lacey went missing, but had told her he was recently widowed. No, I get that. I get that, but I get why that's important to the case. But why do you need to tell the world about it until you're charging... Oh, oh, because it's America and they fucking love it, don't they? Trial by media. Do you not think? Possibly. Nothing against our American listeners, by the way. Um, no, no, and I didn't mean it like that. But I just meant that, like, it's sensational news, isn't it? Like, you know, the police being able to report. See, do you know what? You see that a bit over here with the recent case, but I'm not going to mention the name of what really got my heckles up. Um Funnily enough, I'm going to mention that in the next episode. Um, okay. 
because it's actually really fucking timely excuse my language but you're absolutely right they're drip feeding information that is not needing to be known by the public yeah so Frey, unbeknownst to Scott, had been tape recording her conversations with her boyfriend for three and a half weeks before he eventually came clean to her about his missing wife and his extramarital affair in January of that year. Can I just you say she'd been taping for three and a half weeks? What time period are we in now? How long ago did um, Lacey go missing? So Lacey went missing on the 24th of December. Yeah, and when was this? So how long... Frey came to police on the 30th of December, at which point they immediately instructed her to start tape recording her conversations. Oh, so, yeah. I was thinking, why is she tape recording him before she's gone missing? But it was, she started afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's what I was wondering. Okay. And I'm going to leave it there now, guys, for uh, for next week's episode. So, yeah, I'm just going to hit pause on that revelation from Amber Frey and uh, leave you guessing. This has been Season 2, Episode 18, entitled Reasonable Doubt, Part 1. And so for one last time today, I'd like all of you to relax, to close your eyes and picture the scene. It's Christmas Day and a pregnant woman is missing. The world is watching as the hunt for her continues, but the behaviour of the husband isn't quite matching up with what you'd expect. There's no evidence and no body linking him to the crime. But what do you reckon? Scott Peterson, innocent or guilty? So for me, I immediately thought he's killed her. He's taken her out in a boat, and he's dumped her in the bay. Like that when you thought well, that's like stereotypical bad guy maneuvers there. But I, I don't think it was the burglars, unless you're gonna see. The only thing I'm thinking of, I'm, I've got my analytical hat on here. You haven't introduced any other players in this, so. If it was going to be someone else, you would have mentioned them. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know the case. Oh, you would unless you're going to save that for next time. Um, I was actually thinking all the way up to. I still think he might be innocent, you know, because even though it might be innocent, but just not a very nice guy. And if he has trouble showing emotion, maybe he's just a little bit cold-hearted, which is why the easiest thing to tell Amber Frey was that he was widowed because. He can play in the sympathy a little bit. And if he's not a very emotional person, then maybe he doesn't care he's having an affair. So he might just be an innocent, horrible person. Uh, I, I don't know. But then the the in-laws withdrawing their support sounds like they only did it because she came out and said I was having an affair with him and he told me he was widowed already. So they're thinking... Ding, ding, ding. But um, but I really don't know. Unless you're in- going to introduce a new character into this in the next episode. And I'm not going to look, look, look this up either in between episodes. I don't know this case at all. But um, I don't know. I honestly don't know, Rachel. I think I'm erring on the side of he's not guilty. But... And you can't tell me what you think, I guess, because you know. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sway it. I think next week we will run through a bit more around, you know, what came to light in court and hit a bit more about his behaviour. But yeah, they've 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 charged him and you said he goes to court, so I don't know. I'm interested. I, I am happy to be correct. No, they haven't charged him yet. 
They haven't charged him yet. Oh, He's not going to go up. No. They are just watching him, and they've had they've they've essentially now they've they've they got, think he's guilty. They've got the bullet. They haven't got the smoking gun, right? They've got the bullet. Yeah, they definitely think he's guilty. They it sounds like they thought he was guilty from the get go. Yeah. So uh, get go. Sorry. So you will see. I I am inclined to think he's not guilty, but. I only have what you've told me, so I'm interested to hear more. Okay, cool. Well, we'll leave it until next week then. Okay, thank you, everyone. And same time, same place, we set yourself to auto-download our episodes. They get usually released at 5 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, so it can be there for you to wake up next Tuesday. Thank you all, and goodbye. Bye.